If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Jay, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who knows you better than yourself, right? Like we are our best auditors. If there's something up, we usually have a gut feeling and a sense about it, right? Uh, absolutely. As the song famously said, nobody can be you but you. And I already know full well, I know how I am. I may be my worst critic. I know when I'm having good days. It's like you hear it a lot in sports, too. Like a pitcher knows from the very beginning whether or not he's got it or he doesn't. Just really, really quick. So that's generally how my brain works, too. Some days I know I've got it, and some days ooh, it's a struggle. Even for me, it's stuff like symptoms of a cold. I know where it's going to be in my body, in my head, in my chest, and no, like, I just know the way certain things affect me. But imagine going the majority of your life thinking, and maybe even more importantly, feeling like something wasn't adding up. There was something that was amiss. Oh, I knew my entire life that I was different. My mom always said, you know, she's different. All my teachers said she's different. It made me a target for bullying. It made me a target for all kinds of negative things. I always knew that there was something, but I didn't have a name for it. I'm Brian Seltzer. And I'm Jay Scott Smith. And April is Autism Acceptance Month. And today, April 12th, KYW News Radio's Michelle Durham is going to help tell the story of Elizabeth Lip. Now, she's a mother of two from Montgomery County, and she talks about how autism has affected her family. But first, we have to talk about this just awful situation, this shooting up in New York City. Multiple people were shot and injured at the 36th Street subway station in Brooklyn. And we wanted to bring in our friend of the pod, Christina Coppicer, better known as Luca, our digital managing editor here at KW News Radio. But more importantly, she's also a native of New York City, and you know that train line very well. I'm sad to have to be here under these circumstances. Normally, I'm here for more fun reasons. Um, but yeah, I'm actually from Brooklyn, born and raised, uh, lived there right before moving to Philly last year. Um, and this actually is my old train. So this is a the N train uh, is an express train that runs from Brooklyn through Manhattan and then up into Queens. And when you're on an express train, I mean, there's like sometimes 40, 50 blocks between stops. So people can be on it for a really long time. And the shooting happened on the train car, and you see people pulling into the station, spilling out of the car. There's smoke. There's chaos. It's just really scary because this happened, you know, it was 8.30 a.m. That time of day, what is it generally like on that train cutting through? Because you mentioned it's three boroughs it goes through. So what is yeah, this? So what's that train looking like at 8.30 a.m. on a Tuesday? By the time it gets to 36th Street, so that's the third to last stop. No, sorry, second to last stop in Brooklyn. So it goes 36th Street, Barclay Center, which was a mild stop. So I would have been the next stop that it hits. And then it's basically like, you know, three stops from Manhattan, two stops from Manhattan, you're... It's it's full. Like, it's packed at that point. I Pre-pandemic, you know, you could never get a seat. You're just, it's a bunch of strap hangers. You're kind of elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with people. So it's it's busy. And I think that, you know, obviously I haven't been in New York for about a year. But even like, uh, you know, when I was leaving and when I moved to Philly last year, the train was coming back. It was not as busy as it used to be. But like, we're talking sardines versus like having a little bit of room between people, you know. So it you can see that there's a lot of people on that train. When you've been on that train... How often have you kind of worried or wondered if something like that could happen on a train? 
again, I'm a millennial, so you know, I grew up in New York City. Uh, you know, we we had moved to New Jersey by the time 9/11 happened, but I think that that you know, growing up in that region after something like that, you're just or sort of always kind of it's always in the back of your mind subconsciously. You're kind of like today might be the day. Like you know, it's just it's a weird thing about being a New Yorker that you're just sort of like you just have to go about your life, right? But I think that. You know, I've seen crazy stuff on the subway, especially in the 90s when I was a kid. Like, it was it was bad. It was really, really scary. And then, you know, as an adult, it was definitely safer. But you never know. Sometimes people are screaming. You see people fighting. You know, you see you, you just kind of have to, like, go about your day. But I think it is, like, a, an ever-present thing. And I think especially after, you know, the city went through such a mass tragedy in 2001, like, it just is a part of daily life in New York. I will say, though, I will say one thing that's interesting, and this is something that I love about New York and New Yorkers, is that there's this joke that, like, New Yorkers are kind but not nice. And other places, you know, people are nice but not kind. And I think that's very true. Like, I've seen people on the subway <laughs> kind of – if somebody has, like, their wallet's half hanging out of their pocket, they'll be like, hey, your wallet is hanging out of your pocket. Like, you want it to get stolen? Like, put that thing away. <laughs> so people are looking out for each other, but they're not nice about it, you know? So I think that if, if there is something serious happening – if there is something very serious, like people will step up and help each other out. I actually saw an old lady whack a guy with her purse because he was doing something very unsavory. I'm not going to talk about what he was doing. I don't think we need to go into that. A little we- old lady saw him and was like, what are you doing? And got up, walked to the end of the car and started whacking him with her purse. So, you know, everybody's looking out for each other. It's it is. a. I think that, again, like when you have a city that goes through such a collective tragedy, like everyone just you don't you don't have to know people. You just have to be on the lookout for them if something's happening. Luca, thank you so much for coming in here and joining us today to to talk about this here on the podcast. Anytime. Now, the Philadelphia Police Department, about two hours after the shooting took place, put out a tweet saying, we're monitoring the situation in New York City. The Philadelphia Police Department is working with SEPT and Amtrak police to monitor subways and transportation hubs in Philadelphia. And they're just reminding people to stay vigilant. If you see something, say something and report anything suspicious to 911. Jay, we've been closely monitoring what is going on with the sale of legal marijuana in New Jersey. And we've talked about it a couple times in the last few months that there's been this holdup on the start of actual sales. But we do have an update. There's some good news and some so-so news. The good news is the state gave seven facilities in New Jersey the go-ahead to start getting ready to sell weed to the general public. Three of those places are in South Jersey. So if this happens to get going by the time we get into the summer, you could have a very interesting trip down the shore because one is in Egg Harbor Township, another one's in Vineland, the third one's in Belmar. And now it's something that's important to point out. All of these facilities were already licensed to sell medical marijuana. This is the Cannabis Regulatory Commission Executive Director Jeff Brown laying some of this out. We're making great progress. We are uh, moving as fast, if not faster, than many states that have done this before. Now, the bad news about this is they still haven't actually figured out a date when the legal weed sales will begin. But Brown says he doesn't expect people to have to wait that long. It's been nearly two full years since the people of New Jersey voted this thing in. So at some point, eventually, they're hoping later on this year, you'll be able to make a trip down the shore and, you know, pick up something else on the way down to the beach. Now, April is Autism Acceptance Month, and about one in 44 kids are diagnosed with autism. The numbers are similar for adults as well. KYW News Radio's Michelle Durham tells us the incredible story about a Montgomery County woman who made that discovery a lot later in life than she expected. That's coming up next.
I'm Jay. I'm Brian. And the CDC has been studying autism in children for decades. But it wasn't until a few years ago that they began looking at adults being diagnosed with autism as well. Yeah, JKYW News Radio's Michelle Durham has looked into how autism has had a really big effect on a family from Montgomery County. So we wanted to bring in Michelle to talk about it. Hey, Michelle. I'm so glad to be here, as always. It is always a good day on the John when Michelle <laughs> is Johning with us. Michelle, you've known Elizabeth Lip for a long time. Why don't you introduce us to her? Who is she and how did you guys meet? Uh, she's fantastic. So I've known her since high school, and I'm not going to give away how many years that is because it's too many. Uh, she graduated a year behind me at Nazareth Academy. Uh, we were on the forensics public speaking team together. Shocking that I would be on a public speaking team in high school, but yes. And what is amazing to me about her is that I never knew she felt different. I never knew that she felt different from me. I just adored her. And to hear her say that she masked most of her life is just incredible to me. And what was she masking? So it turns out that Elizabeth is autistic. And she did not find out, Brian. She had her first son. He was born in 2000. And she says the minute they handed him to her, she knew that he was different. And everybody told me, you know, you're crazy. You're first time mom. You know, there's nothing there. But, you know, I kept persisting and kept pushing. And um, he was 30 months when we got his diagnosis. And then her second son was born and she got her diagnosis before her second son. I kind of came by my own diagnosis by accident, and I actually had my diagnosis shortly before my younger son had his diagnosis in uh, 2006. For me, it was it was both a really big surprise and no surprise at all. And I was 39 when I was diagnosed. I mean, for Elizabeth, she just had this sense. And it is amazing to me that she would go most of her life feeling different. And in her words, she had to mask or cover up this difference because it made her a subject to bullying. So in addition to talking about Elizabeth, I reached out to a local expert, Laura Gaffney, who is Family Support Services Coordinator at Durand Incorporated. They're based in South Jersey. You can imagine how it must feel to go your whole lives and, and suspect that maybe you have the autistic trait in you and that you've had deficits and difficulties with friendships and social interactions and maybe eye contact was painful for you and you felt like you had to hide your symptoms from uh, the public and from your friends. And at the end of the day, if you're having trouble making friends, this is going to result in a lot of loneliness, not and let alone a lot of anxiety for people also. So for me, this is just about understanding and why is it that women aren't diagnosed as quickly as men? That is, Michelle, an incredible stat. Just looking some stuff up on the CDC website that in their latest estimates, one in 44 children are diagnosed with autism. But the difference in the genders and the diagnosis by gender, where boys are four times more likely 
to be diagnosed than girls. That's an amazing statistic to me. Did you, through your reporting on this story, uncover or learn about anything why there is such that disparity between boy and girl diagnoses? A hundred percent, because I wanted to know. Everybody wants to know. And here's the interesting thing I found out, which all the years I've covered Spectrum, I never knew this. It is harder for women to meet all the criteria. The criteria for diagnosis of autism, according to Laura Gaffney, is very narrow. We have to have three persistent deficits in social interaction, deficits like sharing of interests, engaging in reciprocity in conversation, going back and forth, being able to interpret uh, gestures and facial expressions. And we have to be able to show that we have difficulty in pretend play. So because of all the masking that women and girls do, they've learned to compensate over the years and just do the things that are hard for them anyway. Social contact, eye contact, all the things that are a little bit more difficult. Women have a tendency to overcompensate and they just do them. And that's why they fly under the radar a little bit. So in some ways, it seems like this is a combination of science and medicine and being able to diagnose things, but also something that's way bigger in society that's systemic. And it's the way that women try to fit in and how they feel. Exactly. Now, in Elizabeth's case, she had a friend who was a therapist who had a hunch that she was on the spectrum. So she gave Elizabeth a survey to fill out. It was kind of like a test. And I filled out the test and um, I scored really high, like surprisingly high on the autistic spectrum. And it just confirmed what she kind of saw in me. And I just want to take a moment because she's so successful. She has a blog. She works full time. She's raising these boys. Her oldest son uh, was so sensitive to situations and environment that early in life, she was told he'll never go to college and he'll never be able to hold down a job. This 22-year-old has had two part-time jobs for five years and is about to walk in graduation. He just got his associate's degree in business administration. Uh, Elizabeth points out the science, uh, not the arts, and he's on the dean's list. Incredible. And he's lined up for uh, some very exciting part-time and potentially full-time employment. Her younger son, love this, marching band, indoor percussion, a bowler. He walked down and got his own part-time job on his own without having his parents be a part of it. He works part-time. Is part of his IEP meetings where he talks about what his goals are for the future. My older son had a photographic memory and has a photographic memory and tests very well. Um, my younger son never tested as well, but the thing is he... It thoroughly needs to learn and process everything. So if I were to put them side by side, I would actually say my younger son's better educated because he is actually put more into learning what he needs to learn. Um, so his way forward is not as clear cut. I mean, he's, he's doing great. You know, his story, actually both their stories are still being written. I think what Elizabeth wants everybody to know is in her words, not what she wants them to know, but what she would like them to do. She wants them to be more accepting of people with differences and be more open-minded. Whether they're obvious differences or, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody and you perceive that there's you know, something a little bit off. Maybe they 
need a little bit of extra time. Maybe, um, maybe they just need you to be in the room with them. You know what I mean? It's, I, I think it's less about what I want people to know and more about what I would like people to do. That was such a poignant part of the conversation, hearing her crystallize that thought. And there's an organization out there, the Autism Society, that's really urging people this month, which a lot of people here in America typically refer to as Autism Awareness Month, to get away from that verbiage and change it to calling this Autism Acceptance Month. Because it sounds like that acceptance, inclusion, those concepts are so critical to helping people who individually have been diagnosed with autism or families that have a member that has autism as well. So in my family, I married into a wonderful family. I married into the Lieber family uh, five years ago. Uh, My sister-in-law, Janine, has four incredible boys. Uh, Three of the four are on the spectrum. I first went to meet her and I walked into her house and everybody said to me, the oldest son probably isn't going to look at you, probably isn't going to interact with you. Not only did he do all that, he said, I'm thirsty. Can you get me something to drink? Took my hand, took me to the fridge. I got him something to drink and he gave me a hug. And my sister-in-law just like absolutely wept. Like she could not believe the connection that I had with her oldest child. And so, you know, flash forward to all the years, it's time for the wedding. And I wanted to include the boys, but I wasn't sure how to sensitively do that. So you know how the catering hall, they give you the bridal room? Well, I turned the bridal room into a sensory room. So I had a babysitter there the entire time is supervised um, and then was able to let all the adults have a great time. They were away from the music and all the loudness when they wanted to be. And then they could be apart when they wanted to be. And then during the ceremony, I didn't want the pressure of them walking up the aisle and having everybody look at them would be so hard for them, painful for them. So what we did was we did a sand ceremony. We had a clear, large glass, and each boy had a plastic pitcher with a different color of sand. And each one stepped forward and poured their individual color in, and that signified the blending of the two families. So it's like Elizabeth said, just think about what you can do in your family for the person that you love and care about to make them feel included but not feel pressured. Michelle, your story about how you integrated your nephews into the ceremony, so touching and well thought out. And it brings me back to just this feeling of I think sadness for Elizabeth that she had to go so long knowing that there was something different, as she put it, about her, yet not knowing what that was from knowing her as you do, talking to her about this. Like, what toll did the unknown take on her, whether it was emotional, physical? How how did she wrestle and grapple with that? And since finding out what the diagnosis was, how has that affected her outlook on things? Has it made it better for her? Here's the beauty about Elizabeth. She doesn't focus on any of that. She's all about moving forward, making things better for other people, making that change in the world, having that change start with her. She's a powerhouse. (laughs) I think the single toughest thing about being a parent with of a child with differences is that you really do feel like you are all alone in this and it feels very isolating. And I think 
when you know that there are other parents who are out there who are fighting the same fights and, you know, doing the same things, it's empowering and um, also validating because there are days when you think that you are literally losing your mind and you're not, you know, um, just having that village is just so important. And that's probably the best single piece of advice I can give any parent starting out on this journey. Build your village. That's great. Fantastic. We mentioned Duran, which is based in the area. What are some of the other resources, Michelle, that are out there for people with autism or people who have autism in their families? Absolutely. So Duran's been in business for 50 years, which gives you an idea of how long, you know, that we've had this knowledge of autism and spectrum disorder. We've got the Center for Autism. There's a number of different organizations in and around Philadelphia that are there to help families. This is the most important thing, Brian. A lot of people feel alone in this journey. It's very isolating. It's also, for people with spectrum disorder, it can be very lonely. They can't make those social connections. They so want to, but they just, some cases, can't quite do it. And this is where these organizations come in that really make a difference because to be accepting of yourself and accepting of who you are and to be surrounded by other people who are just like you and who accept you for who you are, that's really so crucial and so important. And for everybody else, as Laura Gaffney says, leave your judgment at the door. Just affirming them and helping them to understand that they're not less than, that there's nothing to be ashamed of in the way they present. And if they are having trouble making eye contact with you, don't expect it. And I would say, of course, don't judge them. They've been judged their whole lives by their most fierce internal critic, which is themselves. They're trying to fit into a world that doesn't make sense to them. And I would say, you know, just accept them as they are. Amen. I think those are wise words that we can apply to all aspects of our life. Michelle Durham, powerful story. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. Now, as Michelle was talking about, there are a lot of local resources here in the Philadelphia area where you can go to find support if you yourself have been diagnosed with autism or if someone in your family has been and you need help and support a lot of resources in the area. And this, Jay, is a cause that the city gets behind through a variety of different ways. Also, Another organization or another group that's behind this are the Philadelphia Eagles, because every year they have the Eagles Autism Challenge. And for the first time in my life, I'm running in a 5K next month on May 21st to be a part of the Philadelphia Eagles Autism Challenge. This is something that is pretty close to my heart. One of my closest friends actually has a son who's autistic, and she talks to me all the time about just what the process has like, been like for her. He's a he's a great kid, but it's like just the the things that she has to go through. And I think about the need to kind of help with the research and everything else. So the link to that fundraiser will be down in the show notes, right in the description. So make sure you check that out too. Many thanks to Michelle Durham for once again joining us here. And thank you for checking us out on this Tuesday. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. And we'll catch up with you tomorrow as we help get you over the hump and bring in our friend Justin Udo to talk about something that's very near and dear to his heart and also something he's extremely talented at, and that's poetry. That's coming up tomorrow. Thank you so much for checking us out once again, and we'll see you on Wednesday.